demute Christian under the smarting rod. I was dumb. I did not open my mouth because you did it. Psalm 39 verse 9. Not to trouble you with a tedious preface in which usually is a flood of words, but only a drop of matter. This psalm consists of two parts, the first exegetical or narrative, the second recative. Narration and prayer take up the whole. In the former, you have the prophet's disease discovered, and in the latter, the remedy applied. My text falls in the latter part, where you have the way of David's cure or the means by which his soul was reduced to a still and quiet temper. I shall give a little light into the words and then come to the point that I intend to stand upon. I was dumb. The Hebrew word signifies to be mute, tongue-tied, or silent. The Hebrew word signifies also to bind as well as to be mute and silent, because they that are silent are, as it were, tongue-tied. They have their lips stitched and bound up. Ah, the sight of God's hand and the afflictions that was upon him makes him lay a law of silence upon his heart and tongue. I open not my mouth, because you did it. He looks through all secondary causes to the first cause and is silent. He sees the hand of God in it all, and so he sits mute and quiet. The sight of God in an affliction is of an irresistible efficacy to silence the heart and to stop the mouth of a gracious man. In the words you may observe three things. One, the person speaking, and that is David. David a king. David a saint. David a man after God's own heart. David a Christian. And here we are to look upon David, not as a king, but as a Christian, as a man whose heart was right with God. The action and carriage of David under the hand of God in these words, I was dumb and opened not in my mouth. Three, the reason of this humble and sweet carriage of his in these words, because you did it. The proposition is this, that it is a great duty and concern of gracious souls to be mute and silent under the greatest afflictions, the saddest providences, and sharpest trials that they meet with in this world. For the opening and clearing up of this great and useful truth, I shall inquire first what the silence is that is here pointed at in the proposition. Secondly, what a gracious, a holy silence includes. Thirdly, what this holy silence does not include. Fourthly, the reasons of the point and then bring home all by way of application to our own souls. For the first, what? Is the silence here meant? I answer, there is a sevenfold silence first. There is a stoical silence. The stoics of old thought it altogether below a man that has reason or understanding either to rejoice in any good or to mourn for any evil. But the stoical silence has such a sinful insensibleness as is very provoking to a holy God. Isaiah twenty six ten to 11. God will make the most insensible sinner sensible either of his hands here or of his wrath in hell. It is a heathenish and a horrid sin to be without natural affections, Romans 1, verse 31. And of this, Quintus Fabius Maximus seems to be foully guilty, who when he heard that his mother and wife, whom he dearly loved, were slain by the fall of an house, 
and that his younger son, a brave, hopeful young man, died at the same time in Umbria. He never changed his countenance, but went on with the affairs of the Commonwealth, as if no such calamity had befallen him. This carriage of his spoke out more stupidity than patience, Job thirty-six, thirteen, And so Harpalus was not at all appalled when he saw two of his sons laid ready-dressed in a charger. He was bidden to supper. This is a sottish insensibleness. Certainly, if the loss of a child in the house be no more to you than the loss of a chick in the yard, your heart is base and sordid, and you may well expect some sore awakening judgment. This age is full of such monsters, who think it below the greatness and magnanimity of their spirits to be moved, affected, or afflicted with any afflictions that befall them. I know none so ripe and ready for hell as these are. Aristotle speaks of fish, that though they have spear thrust into their sides, yet they don't awake. God thrusts many a sharp spear through many a sinner's heart, and he doesn't feel it. He complains of nothing. These men's souls will bleed to death. Seneca reports of Senecio Cornelius, who minded his body more than his soul, and his money more than heaven. When he had all the day long waited on his dying friend, and his friend was dead, he returns to his house, merrily sups, comforts himself quickly, goes to bed cheerfully. His sorrows were ended, and the time of his mourning expired before his deceased friend was interred. Such stupidity is a curse that many a man lies under. But this stoical silence, which is but a sinful sullenness, is not the silence here meant. Secondly, there is a politic silence. Many are silent out of policy. Should they not be silent, they should lay themselves more open either to the rage and fury of men or else to the plots and designs of men. To prevent which they are silent and will lay their hands upon their mouths that others might not lay their hands upon their estates, lives, or liberties. And Saul also went home to Gibeah, and there went with him a band of men whose hearts God had touched. But the children of Belial said, How shall this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no presents, but he held his peace, or was as though he had been deaf, First Samuel 10, verses 26 and 27. This new king being but newly entered upon his kingly government, and observing his condition to be but mean and low, his friends but few, and his enemies many and potent, sons of Belial, i.e. men without yoke, as the word signifies, men that were desperately wicked, that were marked out for hell, that were even incarnate devils, who would neither submit to reason nor religion, nor be governed by the laws of nature, nor of nations, nor yet by the laws of God. Now this young prince, to prevent sedition and rebellion, blood and destruction, prudently and politically, chooses rather to lay his hand upon his mouth than to take a wolf by the ear or a lion by the beard. Lacking neither wit nor will to be mute, he turns a deaf ear to all they say, his unsettled condition requiring silence. Henry the Sixth, Emperor of Germany, used to say, He that knows not how to be silent knows not how to speak. Saul knew that this was a time for silence. He knew his work was rather to be an auditor than an orator. But this is not the silence the proposition speaks of. Thirdly, there is a foolish silence. Some fools there are that can neither do well nor speak well, and because they cannot 
word it neither as they would nor as they should. They are so wise as to be mute. Proverbs 17, verse 28. Even a fool, when he holds his peace, is counted wise, and he that shuts his lips is esteemed a man of understanding. As he cannot be wise that speaks much, so he cannot be known for a fool that says nothing. There are many wise fools in the world. There are many silly fools who, by holding their tongues, gain the credit and honor of being discreet men. He that does not discover his lack of wisdom by foolish babbling is accounted wise, though he may be otherwise. Silence is so rare a virtue where wisdom regulates it, that it is accounted a virtue where folly imposes it. Silence was so highly honored among the old Romans that they erected altars to it. That man shall pass for a man of understanding who so far understands himself as to hold his tongue. For though it be a great misery to be a fool, yet it is a greater that a man cannot be a fool, but he must needs show it. But this foolish silence is not the silence here meant. Fourthly, there is a sullen silence. Many, to gratifying humor, a lust, are sullenly silent. These are troubled with a dumb devil, which was the worst devil of all the devils you read of in the scripture, Mark 9, verses 17 to 28. Pliny, in his natural history, makes mention of a certain people in the Indies, upon the river Ganges, called Astomy, that have no mouth, but do only feed upon the smell of herbs and flowers. Certainly there is a generation amongst us who, when they are under the afflicting hand of God, have no mouths to plead with God, no lips to praise Him, nor tongues to justify God. These are possessed with a dumb devil, and this dumb devil had possessed Ahab for a time, First Kings 21, verse 4. And Ahab came into his house, heavy and displeased, and laid him down upon his bed, and turned away his face, and would eat no bread. Ahab's ambitious humor, his covetous humor, being crossed. He is resolved to starve himself and to die of the sullens. A sullen silence is both a sin and a punishment. No devil frets and vexes, wears and wastes the spirits of a man like this dumb devil, like this sullen silence. Some write of a certain devil whom they call Hudgen, who will not, they say, hurt anybody except he be wronged. I cannot speak so favorably of a sullen silence, for that wrongs many at once. God in Christ, bodies and soul. But this is not the silence here meant. Fifthly, there is a forced silence. Many are silent by force. He that is under the power of his enemy. Though he suffer many hard things, yet he is silent under his sufferings, because he knows he is liable to worse. He that has taken away his liberty may take away his life. He that has taken away his money may take off his head. He that has let him bleed in the foot may let him bleed in the throat if he will not be still and quiet. And this works silence by force. So when many are under the afflicting hand of God, conscience tells them that now they are under the hand of an enemy and the power of that God whom they have dishonored, whose son they have crucified whose spirit they have grieved, whose righteous laws they have transgressed, whose ordinances they have despised, and whose people they have abused and opposed, and that he that has taken away one child may take away every child, 
and he that has taken away the wife might have taken away the husband, and he that has taken away some part of the estate might have taken away all the estate, and that he who has inflicted some distempers upon the body might have cast both body and soul into hell, fire, forever. And he that has shut him up in his chamber may shut him out of heaven at pleasure. The thoughts and sense of these things makes many a sinner silent under the hand of God. But this is but a forced silence. And such was the silence of Philip the second king of Spain, who in his invincible armada that had been three years of fitting was lost, he gave command that all over Spain they should give thanks to God and the saints that it was no more grievous. As the cudgel forces a dog to be quiet and still, and the rod forces a child to be silent and mute, so the apprehensions of what God has done and of what God may do forces many a soul to be silent. Jeremiah 3 verse 10. This is not the silence here meant. A forced silence is no silence in the eye of God. Sixthly, there is a despairing silence. A despairing soul is a magor misabib a terror to himself. He has a hell in his heart and a horror in his conscience. He looks upwards, and there he beholds God frowning and Christ bleeding. He looks inward, and there he finds conscience accusing and condemning of him. He looks on the one side of him, and there he hears all his sins crying out, We are yours, and we will follow you. We will to the grave with you. We will to judgment with you, and from judgment we will go to hell with you. He looks on the other side of him, and there he sees infernal fins and fearful shapes, amazing and terrifying of him, and waiting to receive his despairing soul as soon as she shall take her leave of his wretched body. He looks above him, and there he sees the gates of heaven shut against him. He looks beneath, and there he sees hell gaping for him. And under these sad sights, he is full of secret conclusions against his own soul. There is mercy for others, he says, but none for me. Grace and favor for others, but not for me. Pardon and peace for others, but not me. Blessedness and happiness for others, but none for me. There is no hope. There is no help. Jeremiah 2.25, 18.12. This seems to be his case who died with this desperate saying in his mouth, Farewell, life and hope together. Now under these dismal apprehensions and sad conclusions about its present and future condition, the despairing soul sits silent, being filled with amazement and astonishment. Psalm 77, verse 4. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. But this is not the silence here meant. But seventhly, and lastly, there is a prudent silence, a holy and a gracious silence, a silence that springs from prudent principles, from holy principles, and from gracious causes and considerations. And this is the silence here meant. And this I shall fully discover in my answers to the second question, which is this. What does a prudent a gracious, a holy silence include. It includes and takes in these eight things. First, it includes the sight of God and an acknowledgement of God as the author of all the afflictions that come upon us. And this you have plain in the text. I was dumb. I opened not my mouth because you did it. The psalmist looks through secondary causes to the first cause and so sits mute before the Lord. 
There is no sickness so little, but God has a finger in it, though it be but the aching of the little finger. As the scribe is more eyed and properly said to write than the pen, and he that makes and keeps the clock is more properly said to make it go and strike than the wills and weights that hang upon it. And as every workman is more eyed and properly said to effect his works rather than the tools which he uses as his instruments, so the Lord, who is the chief agent and mover in all his actions, and who has the greatest hand in all our afflictions, is more to be eyed and owned than any inferior or subordinate causes whatsoever. So Job, he beheld God in all. Job 1 verse 21. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Had he not seen God in the affliction, he would have cried out, Oh, these wretched Chaldeans, they have plundered and spoiled me. These wicked Sabaeans, they have robbed and wronged me. Job discerns God's commission in the Chaldeans and the Sabaeans' hands, and then lays his own hand upon his own mouth. So Aaron, beholding the hand of God and the untimely death of his two sons, holds his peace. Leviticus 10, verse 3. The sight of God in this sad stroke is a bridle both to his mind and mouth. He neither mutters nor murmurs. So Joseph saw the hand of God and his brethren selling of him into Egypt, Genesis 45, verse 8, and that silences him. Men that see not God in an affliction are easily cast into a feverish fit. They will quickly be in a flame, and when their passions are up and their hearts on fire, they will begin to be saucy and make no bones of telling God to his teeth that they do well to be angry, Jonah 4, verses 8 to 9. Such as will not acknowledge God to be the author of all their afflictions, will be ready enough to fall in with that mad principle of the Manichees, who maintained the devil to be the author of all calamities, as if there could be any evil of affliction in the city, and the Lord's hand has not done it. Amos 3, verse 6. Such as can see the ordering hand of God in all their afflictions, will, with David, lay their hands upon their mouths when the rod of God is upon their backs. Second Samuel 16, verses 11 and 12. If God's hand be not seen in the affliction, the heart will do nothing but fret and rage under affliction. Secondly, it includes and takes in some holy gracious apprehensions of the majesty, sovereignty, dignity, authority, and presence of that God under whose afflicting hand we are. Habakkuk 2 verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent. Or as the Hebrew reads it, be silent all the earth before his face. When God would have all the people of the earth be hushed, quiet, and silent before him, he would have them to behold him in his temple, where he sits in state, in majesty, in glory. Zephaniah verse 1. Hold your peace at the presence of the Lord God. Don't chat, don't murmur, don't repine, don't quarrel. Whilst standing mute, be silent. Lay your hand upon your mouth when his hand is upon your back, who has taught us oculus, all eye to see, as well as all hand, to punish. As the eyes of a well-drawn picture are fastened on you, which way soever you turn, so are the eyes of the Lord, and therefore you have cause to stand mute before him. Thus Aaron had an eye to the sovereignty of God, and that silences him. And Job had an eye upon the majesty of God, and that steals him. And Eli had an eye upon the authority and presence of God,
and that quiets him. A man never comes to humble himself nor be silent under the hand of God until he comes to see that the hand of God is a mighty hand. 1 Peter 5 verse 6 Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. When men look upon the hand of God as a weak hand, a feeble hand, a low hand, a mean hand, their hearts rise against his hand. Who is the Lord, Pharaoh says, that I should obey his voice, Exodus 5, verse 2. And until Pharaoh came to see the hand of God as a mighty hand and to feel it as a mighty hand, he would not let Israel go. When Tira Basus, a noble Persian, was arrested, at first he drew out his sword and defended himself. But when they charged him in the king's name and informed him that they came from the king and were commanded to bring him to the king, he yielded willingly. So when afflictions arrest us, we shall murmur and crumble and struggle and strive even to the death before we shall yield to that God that strikes until we come to see his majesty and authority, until we come to see him as the king of kings and the lord of lords, Isaiah 26, verses 11 and 12. It is such a sight of God as this that makes a heart to stoop under his almighty hand, Revelation 1, verse 5. The Thracians, being ignorant of the dignity and majesty of God, when it thundered and lightened, used to express their madness and folly in shooting their arrows against heaven, threatening wise. As the sight of his grace tears the soul, so a sight of his greatness and glory silences the soul. Thirdly, a gracious, a prudent silence takes in a holy quietness and calmness of mind and spirit under the afflicting hand of God. A gracious silence shuts out all inward heats, murmurings, frettings, quarrelings, wranglings, and boilings of heart. Psalm 62 verse 1. Truly my soul keeps silence to God or is silent, or still. That is, my soul is quiet and submissive to God. All murmurings and repinings, passions and turbulent affections being allayed, tamed, and subdued. This also is clear in the text. And in the former instances of Aaron, Eli, and Job, they saw that it was a father that put those bitter cups in their hands, and love that laid those heavy crosses upon their shoulders, and grace that put those yokes about their necks. And this caused much quietness and calmness in their spirits. Marius bid in his pain when the surgeon cut off his leg. Some men, when God cuts off this mercy and that mercy from them, they bite in their pain, they hide and conceal their grief and trouble. But could you but look into their hearts, you will find all is in an uproar and out of order. All is in a flame, and however they may seem to be cold without, yet they are all in a hot, burning fever within. Such a feverish fit David was once in, Psalm 39, verse 3. But certainly a holy science allays all tumults in the mind and makes a man in patience to possess his own soul, which next to his possession of God is the choicest and sweetest possession in all the world. Luke 21, verse 19. The law of silence is as well upon that man's heart and mind as it is upon his tongue, who is truly divinely silent under the rebuking hand of God. If tongue service, abstracted from heart service, is no service in the account of God. So tongue silence, abstracted from heart silence, is no silence in the esteem of God. 
and man is then graciously silent when all is quiet within and without, Isaiah 29, verse 13. Terpander, a harper and a poet, was one that, by the sweetness of his verse and music, could allay the tumultuous motions of men's minds, as David by his harp did Saul's. When God's people are under the rod, he makes by his spirit and word such sweet music in their souls as allays all tumultuous motions, passions, and perturbations. Psalm 94, verses 17 to 19. Psalm 119, verse 49 and 50. So that they sit Noah-like, quiet and still and in peace, possess their own souls. Fourthly, a prudent a holy silence takes in an humble justifying clearing and acquitting of God of all blame, rigor, and injustice. In all the afflictions he brings upon us, Psalm 51, verse 4, that you may be justified when you speak and be clear when you judge, that is, when you correct. God's judging his people is God's correcting or chastening of his people. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 32, when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord. David's great care when he was under the afflicting hand of God was to clear the Lord of injustice. Ah, Lord, he says, there is not the least show, spot, stain, blemish, or mixture of injustice in all the afflictions you have brought upon me. I desire to take shame to myself and to set to my seal that the Lord is righteous, that there is no injustice, no cruelty, nor no extremity in all that the Lord has brought upon me. And so that Psalm 119, verse 75, he sweetly and readily subscribes to the righteousness of God and those sharp and smart afflictions that God exercised him with. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are right, and that you in faithfulness have afflicted me. Righteous you are, O Lord, and righteous are your judgments. God's judgments are always just. He never afflicts, but in faithfulness. His will is a rule of justice, and therefore a gracious soul does not dare to cavil nor question his proceedings. The afflicted soul knows that a righteous God can do nothing but that which is righteous. It knows that God is incontrollable, and therefore the afflicted man puts his mouth in the dust and keeps silence before him. Who dares to say, Why have you done so? Second Samuel 16, verse 10. The Turks when they are cruelly lashed or compelled to return to the judge that commanded it, to kiss his hand, give him thanks and pay the officer that whipped them, and so clear the judge and officer of injustice. Silently to kiss the rod and a hand that whips with it is the noblest way of clearing the Lord of all injustice. The Babylonish captivity was the sorest, the heaviest affliction that ever God inflicted upon any people under heaven. Witness that of 1 Samuel 12 and Daniel 9, 12 and so on. Yet under those smart afflictions, wisdom is justified of her children. Nehemiah 9, verse 33. You were just in all that you have brought upon us, for you have done right. But we have done wickedly. Lamentations 1, verse 18. The Lord is righteous, for I have rebelled against him. A holy silence shines in nothing more than in an humble justifying and clearing of God from all that which a corrupt heart is apt enough to charge God with. In a day of affliction, God, in that he is good, can give nothing or do nothing but that which is good. Others do frequently. He cannot possibly, Luther says on the 120th Psalm.
Fifthly, a holy silence takes in gracious, blessed, soul-quieting conclusions about the manner and event of those afflictions that are upon us. Lamentation 3, verses 27 to 34. In this choice scripture, you may observe these five soul-stilling conclusions first, and that more generally, that they shall work for their good, verse 27. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. A gracious soul secretly concludes, as stars shine brightest in the night, so God will make my soul shine and glister like gold whilst I'm in this furnace. And when I come out of the furnace of affliction, Job 23, verse 10, he knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Surely as the tasting of honey did open Jonathan's eyes, so this cross, this affliction, shall open mine eyes by this stroke. I shall come to have a clearer sight of my sins and of myself and a fuller sight of my God, Job 33, verses 27 and 28. Surely this affliction shall issue in the purging away of my dross, Isaiah 1, verse 25. Surely as plowing of the ground kills the weeds and harrowing breaks hard clods, so these afflictions shall kill my sins and soften my heart, Hosea 5, verse 15. Hosea 6, verses 1 to 3. Surely as the plaster draws out the core, so the afflictions that are upon me shall draw out the core of pride, the core of self-love, the core of envy, earthliness, formality, and hypocrisy. Psalm 119, verses 67 and 71. Surely by these the Lord will crucify my heart more and more to the world, in the world, to my heart. Galatians 6, verse 14. Surely by these afflictions the Lord will hide pride from my soul. Job 33, verses 14 to 21. Surely these afflictions are but the Lord's pruning knives, by which he will bleed my sins and prune my heart and make it more fertile and fruitful. They are but the Lord's portion by which he will clear me and rid me of those spiritual diseases and maladies which are most deadly and dangerous to my soul. Affliction is such a potion as will carry away all ill humors, better than all benedicta, medicamenta, as physicians call them, Zechariah 13, verses 8 and 9. Surely these shall increase my spiritual experiences, Romans 5, 3 and 4. Surely by these I shall be made more partaker of God's holiness, Hebrews 12, 10, as black soap makes white clothes, so does sharp afflictions make holy hearts. Surely by these God will communicate more of himself to me, Hosea 2, verse 14. Surely by these afflictions the Lord will draw out my heart more and more to seek him, Isaiah 26, verse 16. Titanius told the heathen Greeks that when they were sick, then they would send for their gods to be with them, as Agamemnon did at the siege of Troy, send for ten counselors, Hosea 5, verse 15. In their afflictions they will seek me early, or as the Hebrew has it, they will be mourning me. In times of affliction, Christians will industriously, speedily, early seek to the Lord. Surely by these trials and troubles, the Lord will fix my soul more than ever upon the great concerns of another world. Surely by these afflictions, the Lord will work in me more tenderness and compassion towards those that are afflicted. 
As a Tyrrhenian queen said, evils have taught me to bemoan all that afflictions make to groan. The Romans punished one that was seen looking out his window with a crown of roses on his head in a time of public calamity. Bishop Bonner was full of guts but empty of bowels. I am afraid the sage is full of such bonners. Surely these are but God's love tokens. Revelation 3 verse 19, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Seneca persuaded his friend Polybius to bear his affliction quietly because he was the emperor's favorite, telling him it was not lawful for him to complain while Caesar was his friend. So says the holy Christian, O my soul, be quiet, be still. All of this is done in love. It is a fruit of divine favor. I see honey upon the top of every twig. I see the rod is but a rosemary branch. I have sugar with my gall and wine with my wormwood. Therefore, be silent, O soul. And this general conclusion that all should be for good had this blessed effect upon the church. Lamentation 3 verse 28. He sits alone and keeps silence because he has borne it upon him. Afflictions abase the loveliness of the world without that might entice us. It abased the lustiness of the flesh within, which might else ensnare us. And it abates the spirit in a squirrel against the flesh and the world by all which it proves a mighty advantage to us.